0: You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. So gathering in, it's good to be back at Revolution as always. I feel like it's home here. know so many of you and see you guys. Usually at the coffee shop is where I get to see most of you guys, but it's like coming home. Revolution. My wife would have been here this evening, but she didn't want to hear me preach again, so she decided, I'm kidding. She had some things she had to take care of this evening. She's not able to be with us uh, tonight. At Grace Community, uh, for the last two and a half years, it's been about two and a half years, and we've taken some seasons off. Uh, I've been preaching through the book of Romans. I'm in chapter 13 of 16 now. But it's been about two and a half years, just going verse by verse. So when Friday, when Dave asked me if I would fill in for him... I thought it would be just fitting to go back and uh, pick out something I've done at our church, try to make it, uh, freshen it up for us this evening. But if you will, open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. As you're turning there, C.S. Lewis stated this. He says, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried to be good. No man knows how bad he is until he has tried to be good. And I think we all understand what that means, what that feels like. In the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 3, beginning of at least the middle of chapter 3, has to do with man's condemnation, both the Jew and the Gentile, under sin. Paul points that out. The middle of chapter, really the end of chapter 3 into chapter 4, starts talking about the solution, justification, uh, by grace through faith uses Abraham there in chapter 4 as this wonderful uh, ultimate illustration of that. Chapter 5, he begins to talk about the benefits, the standing that we have with God in our justification. Chapter 6, he starts talking about things of the law. He starts laying out for us our union with Christ, our deadness to sin. Skip chapter 7 just for a moment. Chapter 8, no condemnation in Christ. We know how that chapter plays out for those who walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh the end of it, talking about there's no separation in Christ. Where we find ourselves at is in the middle here, in chapter 7. For those of you who have a college education, chapter 7 comes between chapter 6 and 8. Chapter 6, and we're going to be reading a lot of scripture tonight. I know you guys love God's word, and so we're just going to kind of dive in here. Uh, the book of Romans really is Paul's treatise on the gospel. Uh, it's probably his greatest writings for the, uh, those of us that have followed the Um, the argument of that. I mean, there's so much theology. uh, It's just very systematic in his writing style. Some of his arguments, though, are a little difficult to follow. You really have to think through them. And that's kind of the the downside of just kind of isolating a text like this is we kind of miss the broader argument. But early in chapter 7, Paul is describing our relationship to the law. Uh, He kind of plays this off of chapter 6. In chapter 6, verse 14, he reminds us that we are not under the law. Chapter 7, he talks about us being released from the law. Then in chapter 7, verse 4 through 6, if you want to just glance there, this is what he says. He says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to one another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law... We're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Just to clear up any confusion, Paul takes a moment here just to remind us that the problem was never with the law of God. The whole, the law of God is holy, it's righteous, it's good. The problem is us, right? That's the problem. Verse 14, he echoes this, Romans 7. says, for we know that the law is spiritual. He says, but I am of the, of the flesh, sold under sin. So nothing defective in the law. The problem is with us, we can't keep the law perfectly because of sin. And actually, the more we try to keep the law, what it does is it starts to frustrate us, right? It starts to aggravate us because we know what we want to do, yet we find within us this, this struggle, right? Because we're of the flesh... He writes, and that's, we're made of flesh. Uh, As believers, we're not in the flesh any longer, but the idea is the flesh is in us. We're sold under sin. We're no longer enslaved to sin, yet we still possess, as Christians, a sin nature. I know you guys know this well. I'm sure Dave has taught on this topic uh, very detailed. But this battle with our sin will continue on until we are glorified together with the Lord. That's kind of the background of where we're going to be working at in verses 15 through 25. He's describing this battle that we have with our sinful disposition. If you step back and you look at the message of Romans chapter 6 through chapter 8, I think we could sum it up in this way. Putting ourselves under the law for sanctification only aggravates our sin. It doesn't conquer it. Putting ourselves under the law for even our sanctification does it conquer sin, it aggravates it. And we'll flesh that out a little bit more tonight. But when we focus on walking with the Lord according to the Spirit, that is the law of love, love for God, love for neighbor, what ends up happening to our surprise is we actually end up fulfilling the very law of God that we are desiring. We see this in Romans 8. If you want to flip over there very quickly, Romans 8.3. Paul writes, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So there's quite a bit of irony here in the book of Romans. The big picture, Romans 6, verse 6-8. Chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, we encounter what I have entitled, Inspired Frustrations. And my goal this evening is to help us to see, to understand, and to apply Romans 7 to our lives, and to do it so in such a way that explains what I think is true of all of us, especially if you're in Christ. That it helps us to make sense of our love for God, our love for His law, Our hatred of our sin, yet our mutual experience of doing the very things that we say we hate to do. Anyone else know what I'm talking about there? Doing the things that we say we hate to do. Why all of our testimonies can and should include the phrase, O wretched man that I am. With that in mind, I want to ask that you stand with me for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read this section of scripture. Verse 14, chapter 7 through 25. Paul writes this, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. He says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, and he's just screaming that. I'm not going to do that for you guys, I'm not going to act it out, but wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. You may be seated. As you can tell, this is a complicated portion of Scripture, and we're going to need much help. So let's just ask God to do that for us uh, very quickly. Lord, we thank you for your word, your sufficient word, your inspired word. We pray that by your Spirit, you would help us to think through this text as we study this and as we just uh, really discuss it and work through it, that by your Spirit, you would apply understanding, help, strength, and encouragement as we seek to live our lives for your glory and to your honor. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What we just read there in that complicated portion of Scripture was a very personal section for the Apostle Paul. We see that because if you kind of follow it through, you'll see that he uses the word I 24 times. Then if you add the other pronouns such as me, my, or myself, it's another 13 times. So what we have are 37 times that the Apostle Paul refers to himself in just 12 verses. So this is a very personal section. It's a very honest testimony. gives insights to Paul's spiritual experience. And to our surprise, it doesn't necessarily fit uh, what it is that we might think of the Christian life or even what we really think of Apostle Paul. We think of Paul, we think of this bold preacher of the gospel. But what we find here is something unique, something different. As we think about the scripture as a whole, or really even the book of Romans, we have the tendency to isolate a verse here or a verse there, and when we do this, we can kind of develop whatever kind of Christian we want to develop. For example, think about this with me. Romans 6.14, flip back there and just look at this. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Well, there's a definition of a Christian. Sin has no dominion over you. Or, you can pick the Christian in Romans 7.19 that says this. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So each verse taken all by itself would give you a very different set of expectations, right? You can kind of see the difference there. Romans 8, 1 through 2, we looked at this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So we have this idea of being set free. We could go back to, or over to Romans 8, 22 through 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth and denial. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I just want to point that out just to help us to see that depending on which verses you choose there is both fantastic news yet there is also realistic news for the Christian yet both of these sets of news this information both of them are simultaneously true there's been so much accomplished for us in Christ amen we we recognize that but yet not everything that has been accomplished in Christ has been fully realized in our life in the Christian life there is victory and there is waiting in the Christian life, there is rejoicing and there is groaning, and it's all true. It's important to note that there is, here, here is the groaning and the waiting that, the, that we experience in this Christian life, that none of it diminishes the victory and the certainty and the rejoicing that we have. Explaining this strange mixture of how the Christian life all fits together, I think, is why Romans 7 is so important. It kind of gives us, it blends it together for us to help us think through that struggle that we all experience. I want to now look at an assumption that I bring to the text that maybe not everyone agrees with. We'll see after service if I get beat up or not. And that is this. I believe that Romans 7, that Paul is writing, describing a Christian. I believe that is what he is writing about, is his experience as a Christian. I want to explain why I bring this assumption to the text Uh, But first, I want to just point out what Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this, and I actually agree with him. Martin Lloyd-Jones points out that this text isn't really primarily about a person at all, and I agree with him. The primary point of this text, it's about the law and what happens when you try to live the Christian life according to the law or by the law. That's the theme of the passage. But I believe that this is the way that Paul paints this description, the way that he's painting this description, is that of a believer. He's, he's describing his own testimony, his own experience. Uh, a lot of people disagree with that because of the language that Paul uses. Some of it is very graphic. Like, for example, in verse 14, he says that he is sold under sin. That's the language that he uses. Or verse 23, he says, captive to the law of sin. People see this language, and they'll, they'll conclude that there is no way that Paul is talking about him as a Christian. This must be Paul pre-conversion state. Right? That's what people will conclude about that passage. And I admit, even in just reading that, I mean, as we just went through that, it's confusing, right? I mean, there's a, some difficult language there to think about in light of other things that the Bible tells us. Nevertheless, there are many reasons that I would reject a pre-conversion understanding of Romans 7. One is that Paul is writing in the first person. This whole text here, he's writing in the first person, he's writing in the present tense. Verses 1 through 13 I do believe he is writing about his pre-converted experience. He indicated that. 1 through 13 he's writing in past tense. So there he is talking about that. But in verse 14 we see a shift in the text. That all changes. He starts to write in the present tense. Notice there in verse 15 he says, for what I am doing. What I am doing. He continues to write in that present tense through the remainder of chapter 7. Now that should be the end of the argument. It could be the end of the argument, but in case you're still not convinced that that is what Paul is describing as the experience of a believer, I want to keep going here. When we compare this passage to other passages that Paul uh, speaks of himself or uh, speaks of others in a pre-conversion state, none of the language that Paul uses seems to match what he's describing in Romans 7. For example, I know you guys know your Bible well, flip over to Philippians 3. We're going to turn back there very quickly. Philippians 3. I just want to look at another text here. This is Paul giving a testimony of his pre conversion experience. I just want you to listen to the language, and then we'll compare it to Romans chapter 7, verses 4 through 6. Let's kind of pick up there in verse 4. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. So if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So here we know we're clear. Pretty clear that Paul is talking about his life before he was converted, before coming to Christ. The words that kind of jump out there are the phrases is he talks about confidence in the flesh. Talks about zeal. He talks about him being blameless. This is not a picture of a man that is tortured by his own weakness and his inability to keep the law, is it? I mean, Philippians three is a much different testimony. What we find in Philippians three is a man that is totally blind to his own sin. He's blind to the kind of righteousness that God actually required of him. In Philippians 3, Paul was full of self-confidence and pride. Uh, in this state, as being blameless before the law, that language indicates that he saw no need for Christ before he came to the realization, till he was regenerated and born of God. So this is a night and day difference of what we read in Romans chapter 7. Go back to Romans chapter 7. I want you to see this. know this is complicated, we're going to work through this though, we're going to get it. Romans 7, 18 and 19. Think about what he said in Philippians 3, now compare it to this. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, which is very different than what we just read in Philippians 3. He says, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. He says, for I do not do the good I want. So what happened to all that blameless talk that he was talking about? But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So I think these are two different testimonies, right? Philippians 3, Romans 7 doesn't seem to fit together. I would also argue that Romans 7 is much different than the language used in Romans 1 to describe the unbeliever, right? I mean, just talks about that, I mean, being in a debased mind, uh, suppressing the truth. That doesn't seem to be what Paul is talking about here in Romans 7. Romans 7, 18, again, nothing I, uh, for I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Verse 22, he says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Again, I'm just pointing out this is a very different testimony than the unbeliever in chapter 1. What we read in Romans 7 is not someone who is seeking to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Instead, what we read in Romans 7 is someone who savors the truth. What we read in Romans 7 is someone who is agonizing over his inability to live out the truth. Someone who is groaning over this inward failure and corruption. Someone who is grieving over their sin. Romans 7 is not the testimony of someone who hates God's word, who hates God's law. Instead, he made it very clear, explicitly clear. He says, I delight, I love the law of God in my inner being. So in short, I think there is good reason to believe that this passage is speaking of someone who loves the law of God. This is a believer, someone who desires to honor and obey it, yet this is also someone who finds himself in this constant state of spiritual conflict, wanting to be better than what their experience is allowing them to do. To this end, um, commentator C.E.B. Cranfield noted this. says, The verses which follow depict vividly the inner conflict characteristic of the true Christian, a conflict such as is possible only in the man in whom the Holy Spirit is active, and whose mind is being renewed under the discipline of the gospel. And the man who understands the law, not legalistically, but in the light of Christ, and so recognizes the real seriousness of its requirement, and who truly and sincerely wills to obey it, to do what is good, and to avoid the evil. The man in whom the power of sin is really being seriously and resolutely challenged, in him the power of sin is clearly seen. The more he is renewed by God's spirit, the more sensitive he becomes to the continuing power of sin over his life and the fact that even his best activities are marred by the egotism still entrenched within him. I think that is a good description of what's going on in Romans 7. So very quickly, as we build from this text, I want to give you the profile of the Christian, which is my next point, the Christian, the profile of the Christian experience. And let's just see if this hits home with any of you. This is how I think the Christian life plays out. A true believer agonizes over sin. Secondly, a true believer has a love for God's law and desires holiness. I think both of these things are true. A true believer agonizes over sin because the true believer loves and delights in God's law. And I draw this from the text before us. Verse 15, let's look at it again. Paul says, I do not understand my own actions. That word understand means to know. He's saying, I, I don't know. And this word know is, is an intimate word. It's, it's a, uh, a word of love. It's the same word used in the Septuagint to describe the relationship between Adam and Eve. He knew his wife Eve. So what Paul is saying is, I don't understand, I don't love my own actions. I don't like them. I don't like what's going on within me. He goes on to say, for I do not do, so I don't do, I don't bring about, I don't produce what I want. Instead, I do the very thing that I hate. So when Paul would give in to sin, when he would give in to temptation, what he was given into is something that he says that he hates. In other words, he says, when I, when I look at my life and I see the things that I'm doing, I'm, I'm puzzled, I'm confused, I don't understand it because I hate those things. So often the things that we want to do we struggle to put into practice don't we We all have that battle the very things that we hate the very things that we confess that we despise the very things even maybe that you even say I would never do that sometimes those are the things that we end up doing Maybe you feel that way about yourself You ever just stopped and asked yourself the question like living the Christian life just look in the mirror and be like what's my problem I mean, what am I doing How could I ever say that. How could I ever do that? How could I ever uh, think that? I mean, do you ever have thoughts? You're like, where did that come from? What is that? Verse 16, Paul draws this interesting conclusion. He says, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So there's this internal frustration because of this battle, this struggle on the inside. what he concludes is that my desires, uh, my wishes, my will has been so shaped by God's law that even when I do that which I shouldn't, I still agree with God on the matter. I still agree with God. I am doing what I don't want to do, but I still know that God is right and that his way is right. The very fact that I hate it, the very fact that I want to do good, shows that there is actually something that is taking place on the inside of me. He's saying, I recognize that God's law is good, and that my innermost desire is to reflect the goodness of his law. So the unspoken conclusion of this text so far is this. That struggle that we experience, that's a good struggle. That is a good evidence that God is at work in you. If you love the law of God, yet you find yourself frustrated by trying to do the things that you want to do, but you're not able to do them at times, that struggle, that real struggle, that is a good struggle. Rejoice that you have that struggle. And for some of you, maybe this makes no sense. You have no understanding of this internal struggle that Paul's talking about. And the reason for that is because at the core of your being, you really have no internal desire to obey God in the first place. You just want to live your life apart from God's word, and the only struggle that you experience with your sin is typically the consequences of it. If you never struggle with the rightness of or the wrongness in relation to the law of God, if you never struggle with that, it could be because you have not been converted, Then you're not in Christ. For Paul, this struggle was so real because it was what was taking place in the core of his being. In the core of his being, he wanted to comply with the law of God that has been written on his heart, but that was where precisely this conflict was taking place. Verse 17 Paul says, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Just so we're clear, Paul's not just like blame shifting here. and Like, oh, it's not my fault. Just sin that dwells within me. Don't blame me. Blame sin. That's not what he's doing. He's not denying responsibility. He's simply acknowledging and admitting that he is sinful and that the sin within him in the flesh is powerful. There is a real struggle there. He's saying, I have living within me a propensity to sin. Sinfulness lives in my flesh. And while the new me, this new creature in Christ, wants to do the right thing, the new me wants to be holy, sometimes this person that, that I no longer am rises up and causes me to give in to the very thing that I come to hate. Paul lives with this theological tension Between who he is in Christ, clothed in righteousness, seated in the heavenly places, and the flesh that remains with that dead man that he's carrying on his back. And sometimes that dead man rises up and causes him to sin, and it is so frustrating. And I hope that we are all aware that as Christians, we still walk around with a dead man on our back that we know as the flesh. There is a principle of sin that is still at work within us. It's real It's alive. It is powerful. So many times we try to hide from it. People go to a monastery or kind of separate themselves from the world. Maybe think if I just get away from the internet and television, I won't look at those things. I won't watch those things. No matter how far you try to hide or separate yourself from sin, you're still going to struggle with sin because it is not something external, it is something internal. And as real as that struggle is and as bad as you think you are, I just want to encourage you, cheer up. You're worse than what you think. You're definitely worse than what you think. Paul makes another observation here in verse 18. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. So Paul is looking at himself. He's confessing, nothing good in me. Then he makes a quick qualification. I mean, in my flesh. He wants to be clear as opposed to the Spirit. When he talks about the flesh here, he, he's, he, this is the, the, the sin that dwells in me. These are overlapping terms, the flesh, the sin. It's his humanness. It's his unredeemed part of his flesh. He calls it the body of death in verse 24. The, the flesh are those old corrupt desires that battle against the new spiritual desires that we have. He says, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. What Paul is saying is that the flesh, this anti-God power within me that continually draws me or inclines me to evil, that flesh and those desires are always standing in my way as I seek to do what is good. The truest desires, he's saying, of my heart are for obedience. They are to do good, they are to do right, they are there. But as soon as I start to move in that direction the flesh rises out and says, stop, tries to stop him from doing it. It is fighting within him, fighting against the good and incites us to do the very evil things that we hate. Verse 19 and 20, Paul is just restating what he has said. He says, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Let's hope that you guys feel the tension here. I mean, there is so much of a struggle here. This is raw. This is real. Verse 21, he shares what he has discovered through this internal conflict. Verse 21, he says, So I find it to be a law, find it to be this principle. This is what my experience has been, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And I believe that this law or principle that Paul speaks of is the greatest frustration that the believer experiences. I mean, do you guys recognize this? I mean, do you bear witness with what Paul is writing here in verse 21? I want to do good, but as soon as I go to do the right thing, it's like evil is just right there. That is our life. The true Christian recognizes that there is something that is at work within us that we simply do not understand. Paul goes on to say, verse 22, For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. In other words, I I agree with the law. I love it. I desire it. It's how I want to live. This is what I want to do, God. I love your law. It's Paul's passion. It's his desire. Verse 23, But I see. Where does he see it? Not outside of him, but inside. He says, in my members, in my body. In my body. He says, I, this is where the, the flesh is. This is where indwelling sin manifests itself. This, inside these members of the body is the playground for sin. Not that, not that the body is sinful, but it's how sin, it's where sin manifests itself. In my members, he says, I see another law, another power, another force, another principle, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Again, this is very strong language. This is a battle that is taking place in the mind and heart of the Apostle Paul. Paul is saying that indwelling sin, it's constantly lining up to do battle, to pull us down, to destroy us, to discourage us, to pull us away from God. Evil is always lying close at hand. As I just reflect on this, I just want you to listen to this. You are going to struggle with sin. As long as you are in this body, there's no amount of going to church that's going to change that fact. There's no miracle cures, there's no 12 step programs that's going to release you from this. This is going to be a constant struggle in your mind and in your heart. And this is why Paul cries out in verse 24, Wretched man that I am. I want to speak very quickly to the purpose of this passage. What do we do with such a complicated passage? What's the purpose of this? I believe the purpose of this passage set in the context of the book of Romans in between chapter 6 and chapter 8 is to encourage Christians to fight against indwelling sin. It's not just to leave us there in the battle, but it's to encourage us to fight. It's important to know what these words do say and what they don't say. Paul is not saying that he never does the right thing. That is not what Paul is saying at all. If the message of Romans 7 is taking alongside of chapter 6 and chapter 8, uh, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul isn't saying that life needs to be lived in this state of constant failure or condemnation. That's not what he's saying. But he also is saying that the Christian life is not going to be an endless, unbroken chain of victories. This is true of even uh, all believers, from the weakest to the strongest. I mean, life, the Christian life is not just about a bunch of of victories all the time. That that is not the story of our life, right? We struggle. We fail. We fall. I mean, think about pastors who get caught up in grave sin. Sunday school teachers who taught for many years who just walk away from the faith. Christian leaders who... uh, teaching one day and the next week they're professing to be out of the faith atheist or whatever how do you explain that how do you explain our ongoing temptation to struggle with things such as gossip bitterness rage and anger and all of those things that we experience the only way we can make sense of this is to understand this reality of this principle of indwelling sin that causes us to struggle between the spirit and the flesh Romans 7 is so important for us because it brings us to this point of realism in the Christian life. Simply put, there is a wonderful biblical place for the struggle that you and I experience in the Christian life. Struggling with sin is hard. There's times that we lose. Sometimes we fail. We're still forgiven, Romans 8.1. But we get it back up and we start struggling again. Romans 7 is Paul shutting the door on this phony image, this plastic smile image of the Christian life, that everything, how are you doing, just blessed? Too stressed to be blessed, man. Life's going great. You know that guy, right? You don't want to talk to that guy in public whatever you ask him how he's doing, and everything's just a bed of roses. Don't be that guy. Be honest. Embracing this reality allows us to do just that, to be honest with one another, to have openness and humility about our walk with the Lord. As we think about just what Paul is saying here, I mean, are we in that spot that we can be so transparent about the struggle that we are experiencing? Don't you think if we were more honest, like Paul is describing here in Romans 7, that we would just pour our hearts out to one another in confession? Be more intentional about our, not only our confessing of our sins to one another, but ministering to one another, encouraging one another, If we could be more free to admit this struggle that Paul is talking about, wouldn't we have more compassion and empathy for one another? Romans 7 reminds us that there is a place for mourning and weeping before the Lord about our sins, about the sins of others. We can mourn and weep with others. Again, it's a reminder that the Christian walk or the Christian life is not only some Uh, Walk in the park on a sunshiny day. It's more than that. There's a place in the Christian life for wiping off this this smiling grin off of our face. There's a time to cry. There's a time to mourn. Time to weep over our sin. To call out to God in deep intercession about this battle that we're in. The battle that our brother is in. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Again, we hear this confessor's sins. That's what Catholics do, right? No, this is what Paul or what James is telling us to do. We are commanded to confess our sins to one another. And what keeps us from doing this so often is this assumption that everyone else has it all together. We look at their life and be like, man, they can't be struggling with what I'm struggling with. But if Romans 7 is true, and it is, it describes the believer, they are struggling like we are struggling. We're all just beggars telling other beggars where to get bread, right? We're all fellow strugglers on this journey. Look around this room. All of us find ourselves, if you're in Christ, you are a Romans 7 believer. You are a spiritual loser in one capacity. During prayer requests, as we pray for one another, so often we hear things like just pray for so-and-so, pray for their health, pray for their well-being. I appreciated your prayer uh, this evening. Pray for missionaries. We pray for all these things. Very rarely do we confess and ask for prayer from one another. Hey, pray for me. I've been losing my temper with my wife. Pray for me in this area. I've been struggling with this sin. You know what? I'm having a hard time forgiving so-and-so. I'm having a hard time obeying the Lord in this area. We're too proud for that, right? We struggle in that way. What do you think would happen if we start opening ourselves up to one another in this way? This this transparency of the Roman 7 life, I think there'll be great progress made. There'll be great help made with one another. And what I'm saying this evening is not suggesting that there is nothing but gloom and doom in the Christian life. But there will never come a victory in times of struggle with sin unless there's a humble and open honesty about the battle that rages. In other words... Unless you face the reality of Romans 7, you'll never embrace the hope of Romans 8. I want to look at the hope very quickly, the hope of the passage. Paul cries out, the wretched man that I am, he follows that up with this question. He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Again, this, this points to the fact that the appetites, the desires of sin are connected to our flesh, this body of death, it doesn't mean that when you, uh, if you cut our body open that you're going to find something called sin near your appendix. That's not what he's suggesting at all. Rather, he's saying is that in, in our bodies is where this, uh, this sin is operating in our life. It's where sin takes advantage. It's where it sets up shop. It's its members is there, their desires, their weaknesses, their appetites, their habits. Paul's already spoken of this uh, in Romans chapter 6. He says, I'm speaking... In human terms, verse 19, because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, he says, so now present your bodies as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. That word leading there is so important. Leading to more lawlessness or leading to more sanctification. The Christian life is all about leading, not arriving. It's about growing, right? It's about direction, not perfection. So we struggle in hope, without condemnation. At the end of the day, while we know our weakness, we recognize our weakness there in Romans 7, we also know where all of this is heading. I'm just going to read to you this passage, 1 John 3, verse 2 and 3. John writes this, Beloved, we are God's children now, We are God's children, a Romans 7 child at that, but we're still God's children. He says, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Some of the key words of that text are words like now, not yet, Uh, We know that we will not finish defeated. We know that there's this battle that's going on, but we're not going to lose in the end. So Paul says back in Romans 7, who will save us from this body of death? Verse 25 comes this great hope of an answer. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The deliverance that has begun now through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ will one day reshape and redirect These bodies of ours, so much so that in our glorification that he will completely remove us. He's already removed the penalty of sin, but one day he is going to remove even the presence of sin as we receive our glorified body. We will be transformed. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the answer to everything Paul has just said about his struggle in Romans 7. As a matter of fact, it is the summary of what we find in Romans 8. There's provision for victory. There's a provision for walking in the Spirit to help us battle against the struggle of sin. And what we find as we continue on from Romans 7 into chapter 8 is that the provision that God has provided us as we battle against the sin is not a formula, right? It is a person. It is a person. It is Jesus Christ himself, through our Lord Jesus Christ And it's a moment-by-moment dependence on him, realizing that he is the rescuer, he has the power, and as we depend on him, walk by his spirit according to his spirit, not according to the flesh, we are experiencing this deliverance from the power of sin in our life. So you say, Gary, what is your point? Well, that's a good question. My point is this. Keep struggling. I just want to encourage you with that. Keep struggling stay in the battle. I know that the flesh is so strong. I feel it in my life. Many of you are experiencing it even now. That pet sin that just keeps popping up, that monster. It's like the Christian life is like whack-a-mole, right? You like kill one sin, another one pops up. You're constantly just going around battling against sin. There is a real battle. So I just want to encourage you to stay in the battle knowing that Romans 7 ends with Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Just flip over to look at this. Well, let this passage lead us into Lord's Supper this evening. This is how Paul ends it, just this reminder. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The battle of Romans 7 is no match for Jesus Christ. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those of us in Christ, let that be our hope and our encouragement as we battle the battle of Romans 7, this internal struggle of the flesh versus the spirit. As we battle against our sin, be reminded of that hope. Who is going to deliver us from this body of death? It is Jesus Christ, and in him and his gospel, there is therefore now no condemnation. Thank you.